Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to the building. Welcome online. You are the church. And so I love that you are in this space and um, however you come, welcome, welcome. Like you said, my name is Emily. We had a good chuckle. I'm actually from Gig Harbor, Washington. Oak Harbor is equally lovely. Um, but that being said, yes, I hail from Gig Harbor, Washington. I'm married to a tall, dark, and handsome man named Marshall. And we have four boys, so I'm running a frat house. Um, they are 14 down to six and, or sorry, yes, 14. Wow, that moment, you know, you're like, what's up? Um, that being said, yes, I run a coaching business. I get to do coaching and um, spiritual formation with clients and raise little men, and I get to travel and speak at times, which is such a joy. And I have developed this beautiful friendship with the leadership of this church and many of you. Um, I'm so grateful to be here. And you just need to know that, that those who lead, I think about Brian and Wendy and Grant and his wife— incredible people who love you fiercely and tenderly and love the Lord and lead so well and have such integrity. I listened to the messages leading up to this in this series that we're in that is finding joy in the middle of God knows what. And, and I was so struck by, by the heart of, of Brian as he shared with you about finding joy in the middle, finding joy in surrender, these spaces that are difficult. And Wendy's beautiful message, if you have not listened to it on forgiveness, that just pulls no punches and is so wise and rooted in clearly time that has spent, have been spent with God and freedom that's come from forgiveness in her life. And that being said, as I was, I was preparing and I was reading and I was asking the Lord, God, what is it that you, what is it that I have a, difficulty, a difficult time finding joy in? And the word came so swiftly, and I was like, oh, wow, really? Because what you have to know is, if the Lord has not worked out it in me first, it's not coming to you. And it was finding joy in offense. So I know that that's what you're all so excited to talk about this morning, is offense. Yes, let's talk about offense. Because there are no shortage of ways that we are offended in the world right now. Anyone? Anyone? <laughs> Let me tell you a story. A couple years ago, I'm in my kitchen, and my husband is a fabulous type one on the Enneagram, if that means anything to you, but he's type A. When I met him, when we were dating, I learned that his closet was color-coordinated order, and there's a place for all things, and there is no excess. Some of you were like, amen, yes. And I, on the other hand, am a creative, and... I can function in a little bit of chaos. And so we've had to move toward the middle in our 15, almost 16 years of marriage. Um, and he has released some of that. And I have gained um, a great appreciation for order because external order breeds internal order. It's actually a wonderful thing. And so on this particular day, I decided, man, I'm gonna really, I'm gonna bless my husband today. I'm gonna clean the heck out of this house. And so I put everything away and it was looking so good. And I was so looking forward to this glorious affirmation that would come when he came in the door. And he walked into the kitchen and, and the first words that came out of his mouth as he sort of gazed across the kitchen and his eyes landed on the one thing that I did not see, which was a pot on the stove. And out of his mouth came, so what's your vision for the pot? <laughs> My vision for the pot? There might have been another choice word in there that I cannot say from the stage. And I was so, I mean, offended, right? It just came up in me like, and if you could see in a flash all the things that went through my mind and heart in that moment as my body rose up and I got so defensive. And I was like, who are you? You know, of all the things that I've done, we're taking this thing off because it's clicking. I'm gonna be asymmetrical for a moment. Um, but that being said, if you, could, if you could have just seen what came up in me in that moment, this offense, you know, how dare you? of all that I have done, and you see the one thing that I missed, you know? But then deeper, if I were to slow it down and really think about what caused that to come up in me, 
the sense that I feel like I can never do enough and I hate disappointing people and I always feel like I fail. And I was so frustrated and just wanted to protect and defend, but all that I knew how to do was lash out and get defensive and attack him. Do you sense it in you? Do you know what I'm talking about? And so I'm gonna invite you even in this moment, we're gonna go there because today is not just a day where you're gonna hear about something, you're gonna experience the power of God in this place because I do believe that offense is an invitation to freedom. And we're gonna unpack that a little bit today. But I want, you, I want to invite you to do a little thought experiment with me. So I just want you to remember the last time that you were offended. It might have been 10 minutes ago in the car on the way here. It might have been being cut off in traffic. Maybe it was a tweet that you read, a look that was given, maybe an overlook. Someone did not see you. But just allow yourself to go to that last place. When was the last place that everything in me rose up in defense, in protection, because I was offended. What did it feel like? How did your body respond? If you could slow it down and almost see it frame by frame, could you let the Spirit of God even split between the moment when you realized whatever it was that was handing you an offense, that it was as if a weapon was laid down at your feet and something in you was compelled to pick it up. Think about that phrase, did you take up offense? Do you know, friends, that we have a choice? And so in that moment between when offense was laid down, and it could be rightful, it, you could be incredibly justified. It was an offensive thing that was done or said or spoken but do you realize that you have a choice of whether or not to pick up that weapon of offense and cut with it? There's another sword that's talked about in scripture, and this is the invitation to recognize that God has given us another sword. And you may have heard this scripture before, it's in Hebrews 4, it says, the, for the word of God, and that, the word there, word, the Greek is logos, it's not graphy, the written word. This is logos, meaning Jesus, the logos. He's the message of God. So for the word of God, the message of God, however it comes, by way of the scripture, by way of the correction of a friend, by way of the spirit that is in you, who is a voice that is in you, but not from you. However that message comes, the word of God is alive and powerful. It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. In another translation, it says it cuts between thoughts and intentions of the heart. So I might have a thought but then there's a deeper intention and, and the Spirit of God can actually cut between and reveal to me where in me is there a lie, is there a way of thinking, is there a misunderstanding that is causing me to feel like I need to pick up this sword and fight. And so what does it look like when you slow down frame by frame that offense and recognize, wow, this is actually illuminating something in me? What if offense were an on-ramp to freedom? What if everywhere you experienced offense that was actually an invitation for God to heal you, to reveal to you what was in you that, that needed to be corrected, righted? In me, it was the sense that, you have limitations. You, you, I have never made any one person to be enough for any other one person. 
And this expectation of yourself to please all people and to do all things is going to kill you. Maybe not literally, but figuratively for sure. And it's causing disunity in your marriage and in your friendships and in your relationships. And as, as the spirit of God, the message of God began to sift me and reveal to me things, I began to realize who I am and who I'm not. And just yesterday, day before yesterday, yesterday morning, I made my husband something and I, it was, I was chuckling because here, this message, I've been working it out this week. And I gave him something, he's like, wow, you gave me a big bowl here. Now here's the deal, my husband has a great sense of humor. That question, what's your vision for the pot? A great sense of humor. It's actually a very funny question. What's your vision for the pot? I just had no sense of humor. Because offense robs you of comedy, right? It really does. You're like, oh, I have every right to be mad, you know? And so he makes this comment like, hey, a really big bowl. I'm like, oh, it was the last one in the cupboard. And he pauses and he goes, what, what made you think that that was a criticism? And I was like, oh oh, wow, I have to actually do the thing I'm about to preach about, don't I? <laughs> and I paused, I was like, wow, yeah, you said that. And I immediately felt like I just didn't do the right thing. I'm so sorry. It is a really big bowl. It was the last one left in the cupboard, but it has nothing to do with the fact that I didn't do it right or I didn't do enough. It was just an observation. I'm so sorry. And he just kind of chuckled. And he's helping me, right? And so... <laughs> So I just want to let you know, and, and what was beautiful about that is opposed to that first circumstance that happened a few years ago, the first one, it reeled and for days I held on to bitterness and anger toward my husband about a stupid comment. How often do we hold on to bitterness for days because of a simple offense because we interpreted it in such a way that revealed our true understanding of ourselves and of the world that was not in line with the truth of God. And so... I wanna dive in to a place in scripture that unpacks this so beautifully. And you may not have seen it this way before. This idea that, that offense is actually potentially in the hand of God a tool to sift us, despite the fact that in the world, the enemy wants to use offense to tear us down and to divide us. And so we're gonna look at John 4, the woman at the well, and I will not have the scripture on the screen, but I will unpack it with you. And if you have a Bible, you're welcome to go to that place. But in John 4, we're going to look at the woman at the well. And I, I love this scripture because it can be taught in so many different ways. There's so many nuances and, and like all of scripture, there's so many layers. And so I will invite you to think in this way. I love this. Jill Briscoe is one of my, one of my favorite Bible teachers, this elderly woman. She has this fabulous accent. And she was teaching on the Psalm, on Psalm 23, you know, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. And she said, she said it like this, the Lord is a good shepherd. And he has this incredible way of growing new grass in familiar pastures overnight, overnight. So this might be a familiar pasture of scripture. You may have taught it, studied it, but I want to invite you to lean in and wonder right now, God, what do you have new for me today? What new grass is in this familiar pasture for me today? Let's dive in. So Jesus is with the boys, he's going to Galilee. And it says he had to go through Samaria. And if you know anything about this story, the Samaritans were this sort of half-breed people. It was 700 years prior, 700 BC, that the Assyrians had actually invaded the northern kingdom of Israel, and they had sort of co-mingled with the Israelites. The Assyrian king had captured um, the Jewish priests, and they had priests from these other religions and things, and they had brought them back to Samaria. And, and everything, it was just this half-breed religion, these people. And so, so the Jewish people did not at all associate with Samaria. Samaritans. They were at odds. And in fact, if, if Jewish people wanted to go um, to this area, they would actually circumvent Samaria. They would go all the way around it. 
And so it's very interesting here that Jesus is like, no, he has to go through Samaria. In the same way that this morning, you may have thought, oh, it's just a Sunday morning, this is what I do, I go to church, or my friend invited me, maybe this is your first time, you're tuning in online, but what I want to tell you is that this morning is not like any other Sunday. Today is a day that God has a divine appointment with you at a well, and you're gonna learn some things and hear some things and encounter God in a way that will set you free in a way you did not know before. So God has a divine appointment for you this morning at this well. And so he went through Samaria and the boys are wondering like, what are we doing here? But they go and they're hungry because they're teenage men. And so they head into town. And at that point in time, as they're sitting at the well, it's a six hour, it's high noon. If you know anything about the Middle East, it's hot. And typically if you were gonna go fetch water, when would you go? Early morning, late evening, when it's cool, with the gals, because all the girls, you know, bathroom, wells, we do it together. And so, however, there's this moment when this woman arrives, high noon, and Jesus is waiting at the well. Do you think he knew she was coming? Yes, the whole purpose that he was there was for this one. And so she arrives, and the Samaritan comes to draw water, and Jesus says to her, woman, give me a drink. Offense. Do you see this as a divine shove? Jesus wastes no time. Because she's looking at this going, I'm, so, I'm sorry, if my boys came up to me and were like, hey, mom, give me a drink. I'm like, I'm sorry, you get it yourself. You know, I mean, when, when you think about this, you know, if, if, you're, if you're asked to do something on, on your ground, like you have hands, figure it out. And so he asks her for a drink. And what I love is this sort of divine shove from a loving God causes things to come up and out of her. She begins to call out identities, call out divisions. Who are you, a Jewish man, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? And I wanna be careful too that I'm not reading intonation, just like reading a play, you could read it many different ways. I don't know, perhaps she was that brazen. Perhaps she was afraid. Why are are you, a Jewish man, talking to me, a Samaritan woman? I don't exactly know how she came to him, but what I do know is that there was a division here, that there was something that she believed about herself in relationship to this man that caused there to be disunity, where they weren't meant to be talking, where she's not really meant to be serving him. In Jewish culture, a man was not to speak to a woman in public. I mean, Jesus was subversive. He's stirring the pot. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, I'm a Samaritan woman, how can you ask me for a drink? And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep, where can you get this water? I love it because she is so stuck in the literal, you know, aren't we? All we see is what we see. And we forget that what is unseen is actually more real than anything we can see, taste, or touch. And in the West, we have to be convinced of this. Most of the world recognizes that there is something more real that is unseen. We are so stuck in the scientific method and other things, and we've been trained and taught in such a way that we can only sort of ascertain what is is seen, what is here. But Jesus is talking about something that is unseen, that is more real, more true than what she can see. And so so he, (laughs) I love this. She was like, are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did his sons, his flocks and herds? And Jesus answers her this, everyone who drinks this water, the water of this well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give him will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. 
He's speaking to her very desire. And she responds. Again, it comes up and out of her, the truth of who she is. She says, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. You just see in her this longing. What's that thing that you're like, oh, I don't want to keep doing this. It reminds me of my pain, of my isolation, of my abandonment, this thing. I just, oh, just give me the water you're talking about so I don't have to do this thing anymore that is so painful. Jesus speaks to her very pain. And then he says something that is appalling, actually, to me. I'm like, what? Who is this loving God that then looks at her and says, go call your husband and come back? Like, she's asking for living water. Why do you not give it to her? I don't understand. I am offended by the statement. I think so is she. And my dear friend Becca, I was reading the scripture with her and she shared with me something that she had learned once upon a time. And I, I thought it was so beautiful because it's so easy to overlay this with this religious spirit. Like we're meant to call out sin in others. It says in, in, in scripture though that Jesus has no condemnation in him. He is not going after her sin. He is going after her pain. He is calling and inviting her to bring her pain to him. Does that make sense? Like, I want you to bring to me all that is painful for you, all that is hurting you, all that is offending you, all these places of pain. If you bring them to me, then I can give you something. But as long as your arms are full of all the ways that people have disparaged you, abandoned you, offended you, then you can't receive all that I want to give you. You have to lay these things down. Go get your husband and bring him to me. And she says, you are right when you say, oh, she says, I have no husband. And Jesus says to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. You have confessed the truth. You've told me the truth. And what you have to know is in this culture, women had no agency. Men could divorce women over anything. They didn't like their meal. I mean, my goodness, we'd have a lot of divorces in this room, you know. And um, <laughs> that being said, she had no agency. She wasn't a woman that was going from one to another to another. The scripture's been taught in so many ways, like, she's a floozy. No, I don't think so. Most likely, I, I'm wonder, I wonder, I wonder if she was barren. I wonder if she couldn't have children. She, she had nothing to offer. For some reason, she was passed from one man to another to another. And the man she lives with now is not her husband. I don't know if that's a man that's just being kind to her, if it's an uncle, a brother, someone that would graciously take her in because she has no means. Regardless, what we know is that she has been abandoned, that she has been passed over, and there's a place of great pain here that Jesus is calling out to, saying, come and bring it to me. She realizes at this moment, she says, sir, I can see that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. I think about this, it's like he got to the very core of her pain and she's like, can we talk about this religious issue that I have? Have you ever had a friend that does that? You know, you're getting right to the place. You're like, oh my gosh, you're starting to see who God is. And then they're like, but I have a real issue about the way that you worship in the church, you know? And I'm not gonna say, the, the church, oh, I want to apologize for all of the ways that the church that systems that have been created to protect and encourage and love and equip have not protected and encouraged you and have represented a God who is not who he says he is. There is rightful offense in that. But what I love about this is that Jesus 
He doesn't say, no, 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 let's get back to this. He answers her question. He honors her question. She says, I hear that you're supposed to worship in the temple, but I can't even go there, and we worship on the mountain. And and he honors her question. He says, let me tell you this. There is coming a day, a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. You have a portable sanctuary of the heart where the Holy Spirit has taken up residence. You don't need a building. You don't need a space. But this is such a beautiful gathering where we come together. We learn together. We grow relationships in this space. But there is nowhere that you can go apart from God's presence. There is nowhere you can go where worship cannot take place, where you cannot receive the message of God, where you cannot kneel in in praise or invite and in pain the God who wants to heal you. The woman said, I know that the Messiah is coming and when he comes, he will explain everything to us. In other words, I don't quite understand. (laughs) And then Jesus declares, I who speak to you am he. And it's one of the first times that he reveals his true identity to an outcast woman in the middle of nowhere at a well. And it goes on to talk about this conversation. The disciples actually rejoin, and they're like, why is she talking to him? But they don't ask questions, because they know by now. And they have a conversation about food and a snack and whatnot. And she runs back to town. I just love this. She runs back to town, and she says, I know that the Messiah called Christ is coming. Um, Oh my goodness, sorry. She says, then leaving her water jar, this is so important, she leaves her water jar behind. The thing that keeps bringing her back to her pain, she leaves it behind, at his feet. And she runs back to town, and the woman who was silenced, who was isolated, is restored because of an interaction with her living God to her true identity, which is a woman who is a leader with a voice. And she tells a whole town, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. How beautiful when our confession becomes a place of joy, when we can say, oh my gosh, listen to my whole story, it's gnarly, but I encountered a God who knows my whole story, story, and he did not meet me with condemnation, but with a gift of life. And she takes joy in this, and she tells the people, and they come, and they stay, and, and for two days, Jesus stays with those people, and, and they tell her, we now believe not because of the words of your testimony, but because we have encountered the one who you told us of. Hearsay became experience. And so I want to just unpack for a moment this idea of confession being a place of joy. It says in the scriptures, if if we confess our sin, he is faithful. God is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so often we think the word confess means to be like, I'm so sorry I did all the bad things. But confession In the Greek, the word is homo logeo. Homo meaning the same. Logeo is the same root as logos, which is the message of God. It's to say the same as God. It's to come in alignment with God. So I can come to God and say, God, I don't believe that I'm doing enough and I feel like I'm constantly needing to defend and protect myself. I'm telling my truth to God. It's what he already knows. He's like, thank you for laying that down. I can also confess, God, you you are Lord and you are good and I love you, and I know you have something else for me. Will you please make an exchange? Forgiveness is a great exchange. It's that thing that happens at the cross where he exchanges death, anything that brings us death for life, where our truth, little t, is exchanged for the great truth, Jesus himself. 
And so when we come to him and we confess, we tell our truth, then we have an opportunity for repentance. The word in the Greek is metanoia. It's a change of mind. You've heard it said this way, when you repent, you turn. It's literally a change of mind, a change of direction. What's interesting about that is it's to think differently or afterwards. It's, it's after something. It says in the scriptures that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. So I come to God, I tell him my truth. I am offended. This is what is coming up in me. Search me and know me, reveal to me. What is the lie in me? What am I trying to defend? Why, why is this happening? Why do I want to grab that knife and cut? And so I tell him that, I say, God, what do you want me to know? What is your truth? Tell me who I am, who do you see? Who are you? What do you want me to know about myself, about the world, about this person? And he tells me his truth and changes my mind. I have a mind change as a result of the kindness and the goodness of God, and as a result, I am transformed. My form is changed, my behavior is changed. We so often want to change behavior, but that is actually rooted in belief. What I believe about God determines what I believe about myself and about the world, which then determines my behavior. So we have to get to God in the place of belief. God, what do I believe about you? Are you good? Are you safe? Do you really have no condemnation in you? Are you really not angry with me? God, tell me who you are. And I come to find out that he's deeply compassionate and kind and so patient. He's so good and he's so different than anyone and anything you've ever encountered. And so we are transformed and that might cause you to think there's a scripture in Romans 12, it says, do not conform to the pattern of this world. What is the pattern of this world? Offense, cancellation. It's in fact your right to be offended. Cancel all the people. And I'm not saying that there aren't spaces and places where there are necessary boundaries that do need to be set, where we need to remove ourselves from relationships that are actually very harmful. That is not what I'm saying, but we are so free with our cancellation and our offense, and it is hurting us and dividing us, and we are missing opportunities to let God heal us and walk in an unoffendable way. And so we begin get to be transformed. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is our hope. This is our goal. And God's good will is that you would walk one with him, that they would be one as you and I are one, as Jesus prays to the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the Father, and, and Jesus, the Son, that you have sent. Eternal life is not a place off in the future. It's a right now reality of an intimate relationship with the living God. What a gift that we have to walk with God. I was talking with a friend the other day as I was preparing this. I was sitting in a coffee shop and sort of tying together the sermon and just processing and reading and my friend Tomsley walked in the coffee shop and he's just this beautiful man who um, just lost his father unexpectedly and he just carries the joy of the Lord even in the midst of sorrow and he walked in and I said Toms I'm, I'm talking about joy and offense he's like oh <laughs> and I said what do you think about that and he said I feel like joy joy is so in rhythm and in sync with freedom wouldn't you say when you feel freedom, there's joy in that place. And Jesus invites us to, to, to be forgiven, to, to make an exchange of our, the lies that we've believed with the truth of him so that we can walk in freedom. 
And I started to think about this. I was, I was like, man, where, where else does joy, is joy talked about this idea of repentance? And in Luke, it says, I say to you that likewise, there will be no more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 persons who need no repentance. I don't know 99 that don't need repentance. I don't know where they live. But, but I will just say, if you even have a change of mind in a moment, say there's such joy in coming in alignment with the truth of God. There's such freedom in coming in alignment with the truth of who God is and who he says you are, and then you do not need to protect and defend yourself any longer, but you can move through the world in a way that is unoffendable. And I don't know any better example of this than the person of Christ. I mean, do you realize, like when you think about his life, how many people questioned his identity, spit on him, tried to kill him, betrayed him, lied about him? He had every right to be so deeply offended, and yet he walked through life in this, like, I mean, he was so unpredictable. He never did the same thing twice. And it's not that he didn't have firm words, he did, but he was, it was always from a place of love and compassion and grace. I mean, he was, he's unbelievable to me. And yet he was unoffendable. How? And I'm sitting in this coffee shop and I'm asking the Lord, and what I found out later is that Thomas had been praying for me. He had sat down, he's like, I just sat there and I prayed for you. And as, as that was happening, this came up in me, I was like, Lord, show me, what's, what's the secret sauce, you know? How do, how do I walk through this life in an unoffendable way? I'm so tired of being so defensive. I'm so tired, I don't want to go back to that well anymore. I'm tired of what it does to me and my family and my friends. Like, I don't want to be defensive. I don't want to live in comparison and fear and self-protection. I don't want to do that anymore. What does it look like? And right away, I just, that scripture came up in me when Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And it's, it's the night before Jesus is crucified. And he's in the upper room and he, and he gathers the disciples together And it starts with this, it says, Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power. First and foremost, he knew the Father. I love this invitation a friend gave me. You're not meant to just believe in Jesus. You're intended to believe like him. To believe like him. When I look at Jesus, how does he come to the Father? Do I believe like Jesus that the Father is the safest place? That his will is so good and for me? Do I believe like Jesus that drawing away is the most wonderful place I can go and that's, that's where I discern the will of God and then I have purpose out in the world? Do I believe like Jesus about my identity, that I am the beloved of the Father, that he is pleased in me? Do you believe like him? He says this, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. This is the secret sauce because then what he does next reveals to us the, the, the form of what it looks like. But this is what he believed. He believed that he came from God and that he was returning to God. Do you know whose you are? Do you know that you were formed in your mother's womb? Your, your, your very presence was actually the joy set before Jesus when he went to the cross. It was you and I for the joy set before. I endured the cross, scorning its shame. To be sat at the right hand of the Father, and guess who else is sat at the right hand of the Father? You and I. That is scandalous to think about. Do you believe the identity that God has given you, that he's so with you and so for you? And, and as you walk throughout the world, you are the very image of God, that you actually reflect the image of God. When people look at you, when you are walking your true identity, you reflect the very image of God. They see God in you. You carry the presence of the living God. 
He believed that he had come from God and he was returning to God. And so he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment, his outer clothing. And the word there, I think in the Greek, it's talitha, I believe. And it's not like a just normal take off word. The only other times it's found in the scriptures is the word that Jesus uses when he says, I came to lay down my life. He took off, he laid down that outer garment. He laid down what gave him status. He laid down what other people saw. He laid it down. He laid down his life. And what he was left with was an undergarment that would cause him to look exactly like a common house slave. And he knelt down because there was nothing below him. Because he knew he was seated in the highest places, there was nothing below him. He didn't have to defend or protect anything. And he washed their feet, including the one who hours later would deny him, including the one who would betray him minutes later. He washed their feet. Like, this is our God. And he invites us to that same understanding of who he is and who we are, that we can get low and get curious. And when that thing is written online or that comment is made by a friend or a spouse or a child, that we can get curious, gosh, what, what is causing you to think that way? Because I don't have to defend or protect myself anymore. What caused them to come to that place? I entirely disagree with their conclusion, but how did they get there? Because we have a God who is a truth teller and we also have an enemy that is a liar. And it says in the scriptures that our enemy is not flesh and blood, but it is powers and principalities. It's every way of thinking that sets itself up against the truth of God. And there are so many beloved humans that do not yet know the person of Jesus who are bound up in a lie. And we're not meant to fight with them, we're intended to love them and get curious and move into not their sin to call them out, but ask them about their place of pain so that they can be invited to a safe place of encountering the goodness of God. That is the intention here. And so would offense perhaps be an invitation to freedom? Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. I'm gonna invite us now to fix our eyes on Jesus for a moment. We're gonna do a thought experiment. God has created every part of you to communicate with you. Your intellect, your, your heart, your emotions, your body, your imagination. I trust that you've experienced God in all sorts of ways, each person uniquely and individually. And one of the things that I've, I'm so struck by is that he created an imagination for us. This place of our imagination, you can think of it almost like a, a movie projector screen, and we are the director, and we get to decide what will be projected in that space, right? I could tell you right now, think of a zebra. Oh, look at that. Projected in that space. I can direct you in a way. And the beauty of scripture, it says that we are given the mind of Christ, and so I can lend my imagination to the living God and say, God, will you paint a picture for me? Will you show me how it is that you think and how it is that you feel? We do this all the time with the enemy. We lend our imagination to the enemy by way of this question, oh my gosh, what if? And he takes us down a journey that produces real fear and anxiety in stories that will never come true. He's a liar. So in this moment, I'm gonna invite you to suspend that. 
We bind the enemy in every way, muzzle him. And we ask Jesus that you would be the only one that speaks, that we would hear from your voice. And so God, we lend you our imagination, our bodies, our minds, all of us that you have created in your image to relate to us. And we ask you right now, Jesus, would you give us a sense of your presence? Where is he right now in this room? Is he in you, in front of you, kneeling before you, standing? If he could speak to you right now, just ask him, Jesus, what do you want me to know? Because he is always speaking. If it's quiet inside, trust it is the peace of God that is quieting your mind. If there's an image or a word or a memory that comes, just ask him, what do you want me to know? And Jesus, as we go back to that place of offense in us, would you reveal to us, God, what is the lie that we are believing about ourselves or about you or about the world that is causing us to pick up that weapon of offense? And wherever you are holding offense in you, I'm gonna invite you to hand that weapon to Jesus. He's right before you. God, would you just give us a sense you are standing before us? Perhaps you're before the cross just reminding us of what you've already done. Can you hand him that weapon of offense? If there's a person that comes to mind that you have been offended by, I want you to imagine that you're ushering that person from your side to his, along with every offensive way in you. What does he do with them? What does he do with that weapon that you've handed him? Remember, he is the debt forgiver. That person is bankrupt to give you what you need. Forgiveness happens between you and Jesus, where you hand him every debt that's been laid against you. He cancels every debt. He cancels the power of that memory over you, and he gives you what you need. And so just ask him even now, Jesus, what do you want me to know? In place of that weapon of offense, what do you want to give me? receive what he has for you. Whatever gift he wants to offer, perhaps a song, an image, just a deep sense of peace, a hug, a dance. You can do this at any moment in any day. Any moment you feel offense rising up in you, pause, God, what do you want me to know? What's the truth that you want me to know? What's the lie that I'm believing? Would you exchange with me? Show me how you want me to see. Give me your eyes. And he will offer you a new way, a way of freedom, a way of joy. The joy of the Lord is my strength. It says in Nehemiah 8.10. And so God, as we walk in freedom, would you give us a sense of great joy that we are free from the bondage of the world, the ways of the world, that we can walk through the world in a way that is curious and not judgmental. Thank you, Ted Lasso and Walt Whitman. God, would we be curious people, not judgmental? Would we be people that are in wonderment of what you want to do and when offense is rising up, would we see that as an invitation to freedom, to healing and to joy? 
Would we be safe people that when other people are in our presence, that they feel safe, that they can say what they believe, that there would be no condemnation there, but great curiosity. And then you would give us the grace to correct and align with your truth. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you are so safe, that anything we bring up that is, comes up in you is not offensive to you. You already know. And so it would be honest to worship in spirit and in truth. God, the longer we stare at your face, the more we are formed to be like you. And so I'm so excited to worship this morning. I'm going to pray a blessing over you that my dear friend Tom's gave to me that next day. He sent me this and I said, can I pray this over the congregation? It's so beautiful. And he gave me permission and it says this, may the joy of the Lord fill you today. Not the earthly joy that consists of having or possessing, but a heavenly joy that comes in being and enjoying. Not the mere happiness that is conditional upon prosperous circumstances, but a joy that is present in times of abundance and in times of need. Not a fleeting happiness that smiles in the sun but grows sad when the clouds come, but a deep joy that sings in the sun and dances in the rain. May the joy of the Lord, a joy that the world cannot give nor take away, but can only be received by abiding in him, give you the strength to experience, to experience all that God has planned for you today. Let's worship.